All right. If you have your Bibles, please open them. And you're going to go about halfway through your Bible to Psalms. When you get to Psalms, you're going to go to Psalm 19. Psalm 19. We're going to read the whole psalm. It's 14 verses. And then we're going to pray. And then we're going to talk about it. Psalm 19. To the choir master, a psalm of David. The heavens declare the glory of God, and the sky above proclaims his handiwork. Day to day pours out speech, and night to night reveals knowledge. There is no speech, nor are there words whose voice is not heard. Their voice goes out through all the earth, and their words to the end of the world. In them he has set a tent for the sun, which comes out like a bridegroom leaving his chamber, and like a strong man runs its course with joy. Its rising is from the end of the heavens and its circuit to the end of them, and there is nothing hidden from its heat. The law of the Lord is perfect, reviving the soul. The testimony of the Lord is sure, making wise the simple. The precepts of the Lord are right, rejoicing the heart. The commandment of the Lord is pure, enlightening the eyes. The fear of the Lord is clean, enduring forever. The rules of the Lord are true and righteous altogether. More to be desired are they than gold, even much fine gold. Sweeter also than honey and drippings from the honeycomb. Moreover, by them your servant is warned, and in keeping them there is great reward. Who can discern his errors? Declare me innocent from hidden faults. Keep back your servant also from presumptuous sins. Let them not have dominion over me. Then I shall be blameless and innocent of great transgression. Let the words of my mouth and the meditation of my heart be acceptable in your sight. O Lord, my rock and my redeemer. Let's pray. Father, thank you for this time. We just pray that you would tune our hearts to your word, that we might understand you, that we might recognize you in your glory through the ways that you've told us we might observe you. We want to study those things. We want to get the most out of them we possibly can so that we can look at ourselves rightly. We can compare ourselves to you and we can see that there is no one like you. There's nothing in this world that is better than you, more desirable than you, more awesome and worthy of praise than you, and therefore you alone deserve all the glory. Whether we recognize that at all tonight or whether it has been a long time since we felt um, the beauty of your glory weighing upon our hearts, Lord, please uh, wake us up. Give us energy that we might see your word and recognize the truth of it and we might live our lives by it. Please help us to do that. Give us energy. Help us pay attention well um, and let us learn from your word, Lord. Only your spirit can do that. So we pray that your spirit would bless us that we might understand the truth you have for us. And we pray these things in your name. Amen. So for those of you guys who are new, I normally begin um, these kinds of sermons, or whoever begins them usually, if it's not me, I usually begin it with like a story or an anecdote or an illustration or even a biography sometimes. 
Um, but honestly, this psalm is so chock full of truth that we basically just need to jump right into it so you guys have time to meet each other and you guys can meditate on all of the massive amount of truth that's here. So I want to get right to the point. My greatest goal for you is that this summer you would have a clear pathway to know God better. That this summer, while your time is relatively undistracted, while you have that time to yourself, that you would be able to know how you can look at God's word and know God better. And the method by which you can do that, that I think Psalm 19 is going to give you, is very similar to kind of, (coughs) you can tell I've been yelling a lot, goodness gracious, is very similar to a kind of homework assignment you've had before. So raise your hand. I know we just got out of summer, so no one wants to talk about homework. But raise your hand if you've ever had one of those book reflection assignments before. Cool. So some of you. So, you know, any of those assignments where you read a book and it's not good enough to read the book, you have to read the book and then you have to write about the book and then you got to write that thing and give it to your teacher so then it proves that you've read the book. You've had those before? Some of you have done that? Amy's like, okay. Well, some people have done this before. You read a book, you write about what you learned about the book, and then you give it to your teacher to prove you read the book. Now, the reason you end up doing that is usually because your teacher knows it's not enough to just read the book and get the information. You need to sit in it, you need to stew in it, you need to think about it, and in that there's a different kind of learning that happens so that when you give your thoughts back to the teacher, they're more precise and you've walked away knowing more than you did from simply reading the book. Psalm 19, in a very simple way, is going to do something similar. Thank you. This is awesome. This isn't awkward at all. Psalm 19 is going to give you a very similar pathway, because Psalm 19 is a psalm that we come into, and the guy who wrote it, King David, is basically in the middle of a read and response assignment. But he's not doing it because God gave him homework to do. He's doing it because he loves God and therefore he wants to know God better. So what he does is he's going to learn about God through the book that he has given him. And then he's going to respond to God appropriately. Psalm 19 is really going to give you uh, that pathway. And the first way you're going to end up doing that is by reading God's two books. And when I say two books, I think you might be thinking, okay, well, I know the Bible is one book. Is there another book? And it's not another book from other religious groups. It's not the Book of Mormon. It's not something else. What I mean is that God is giving you two things to learn about himself by observing them. And when you observe them, it's going to tell you how to respond to God appropriately. And the two books that God has given you, Psalm 19 says, is his world book, and his word book, his world book, and his word book. One book, you observe God by walking through it every single day, and that's this world. And the second book is a literal book in which you read about him and learn about him, and hopefully you're doing that every day. The first book is going to display God's glory through the creation surrounding you, and then the second book is going to tell you God's glory in salvation. And God wants you to observe those two books, not just out of obligation, but that it would be something you want to do. And the more that you do that, and the more that you observe what God has in store for you to learn, 
the more you'll not only want to respond appropriately, but want to love and live your life for him. So we're going to break this down in a little bit of an easier way. If you want to know the pathway in the simplest of terms, it's a three-step process that Psalm 19 is going to give you. Number one, look up. Number one, look up. Number two, look down. Number two, look down. And number three, look in. Number three, look in. So let's go for it. Psalm 19, verses 1 to 6, is telling you, look up. And what God means by that is that you should read about God's glory through creation. Verse 1 of Psalm 19 says, The heavens declare the glory of God, and the sky proclaims his handiwork. The word glory means the significance and the importance of God. God's glory is something supposedly heavy or weighty. It's something so important that it makes an impression on you. It has an effect on you. And if you want to experience the glory of God, all you need to do is is look up. And when you look up, you're going to be faced with the creativity and complexity of God as the creator of everything. David refers to them as the heavens. That's the sky. And when you look into the sky, you are literally looking into infinity. And in the same way that you could look up and your sight could potentially never stop going, that space will never ever seem to stop. That's how much important and significance God has in his glory. It is never ending. Verse 2 is explaining that every day when you walk around, even in the smallest details, God is showing you his glory through his creativity and complexity and everything is created. And even when the sun goes down and the moon comes up and there seems to be darkness everywhere, even then the tiny little lights in the sky that you will see will declare the exact same thing, that God is worthy of glory. In the ancient world, they didn't know exactly what the lights in the sky were, but they knew that they were beyond understanding. And even now, when we know so much more that those lights are stars and even galaxies, the truth is it's even more beyond our understanding, that we're never going to be able to explain everything up there because we don't know everywhere that is possible in space. There's not a planet out there, not every planet will ever be able to explore or know everything that's out there. And that's supposed to point us to God being worthy of glory. It says the creation in verse 2 is pouring out speech. Raise your hand if you've ever been to Yellowstone National Park before. Any of you? Well, some of you guys might be familiar with what's called a geyser, which is water doing stuff scientifically under the ground, and it causes so much pressure that it shoots out and the water erupts into the air. That's God's glory in creation. It is so powerful and explosive that creation can't help but call out that God is worthy of glory. A very famous pastor named C.H. Spurgeon said it this way, The sun, the moon, and the stars are God's traveling preachers. Their teaching is not addressed to the ear, and it is not uttered in sounds. It is pictorial, and it is directed to our eyes and to our hearts. Even though it gives no literal words, their instruction is very clear and clear enough to be described. That's what verse 3 is talking about. That even though this book of creation doesn't literally talk to you, it's saying something obvious to you about itself. And verse 4 is saying that that truth is not only that God is worthy of glory, but that that truth is unavoidable. 
No matter where you go, the sky is always going to be above you, everywhere on earth. You can't get away from the sky. And in the same way, you can't get away from the fact that there is a God who exists and created everything. Apparently, that description wasn't enough for David, so he got even more specific halfway through verse 4, and he wants to talk about one part of creation, but a very significant part of creation, and that's the sun. In verse 4, he explains that the sun isn't here by accident, and it's not by accident keeping everything else around it, an orbit. That's what we know we are a part of around the sun now. None of that is there by an accident, but God himself told the sun to get out of bed, and then every day he tells the sun to go to sleep. The sun is part of God's control. No matter how much we've scientifically discovered about the sun, there's one thing that we still can't ignore, and that's the consistency of what the sun does never seems to change. And again, that's not because science got together and suddenly made it happen. It's because God is upholding the sun in the same way he's upholding the whole universe. And according to Psalm 19, the sun loves to tell that message. The sun loves to get up and get going and declare the business of glorifying God. That's why he uses an example of a bridegroom and a strongman. A bridegroom is like a guy getting out of his tent in the ancient world and realizing he's getting married. And he's so excited about getting married that he can't wait to get dressed, get up, get out of his tent, run to the altar, and marry the person he loves. That is like the sun declaring God's glory every single morning. It can't wait to get out of bed and tell the whole world, I have come to proclaim the glory of God. And when I leave, the stars and galaxies will come out and they will declare the same message. And verse 6 says, in the same way that we can't ignore the sky over our heads, we also can't escape the touch of the sun. This week I looked up that of all of the places when the sun doesn't hit its orbit in the same way, when there's darkness over certain places like Alaska for long periods of time, the longest place on earth that goes without the sun is 70 days. So even 365 days of the year, only 70 of those days at the most can escape the sun, but even then the sun is still going to show up. Scientists also say that there's so much power in the sun that apparently it's not going to run out of juice for about 4.5 billion years. That's just a tiny, tiny fraction of the power that God has who controls the sun itself. And that's supposed to have an effect on us. The whole point that Psalm 19 is explaining is that the sun, even in its everyday motions, has an effect on us. About a month ago, me and Ashley were in Laguna, and we were having dinner with some friends on a restaurant uh, roof, so you can see the whole sky around you. And I don't really like those places because I'm trying to talk to my friends, and there's lots of people around us who are talking very loudly and laughing very loudly, and I have no idea what's going on with my friend because I'm just hearing everyone around us. Something really interesting happened about an hour into dinner, which is that the sun started going down. And even though everybody knows the sun goes down every single day, everyone on this rooftop restaurant slowly started getting quieter and quieter and quieter until everyone's got their phones out silently recording the sunset. No matter how ordinary and normal 
the sunset is to the function of our daily lives, it's still incredible. And that's supposed to have that effect on us. I think a lot of you guys grew up in the church. And I think a lot of you guys think that the only reason you might assume God exists is because you grew up in a Christian family. And Psalm 19 disagrees with you. Psalm 19 says the reason that you know a God exists is not just because you grew up in a Christian family, but because the sun exists and the sky exists. And every single day the sun comes up and every time you look up and the sky is still there, it is telling you God exists. Sometimes we can put that into question, especially in our day and age where you or people you talk to seem to think that God's existence doesn't seem obvious. What Psalm 19 is going to tell us is that that has a lot less to do with God and a lot more to do with our own hearts. Because if God exists, then we have an obligation to glorify him. And if we don't want to glorify him, it's easier to believe he doesn't exist. So we take the weight of the feeling of the glory of God and we do something else with it. Romans 1.20 says that God's invisible attributes, namely his eternal power and divine nature, have been clearly perceived ever since the creation of the world and things that have been made. So we are without excuse. The question that's not up for debate is whether God's glory is real. The question is, do you feel the weight of his glory in creation on your heart? And if you do, and the more you go into creation, and you start to investigate how complex and perfectly put together this world is, and you recognize there must be something bigger than me out there, what are you going to do with that? And the reality is, Creation can only give you so much. It can't tell you specifically who this God is. And that's exactly why David in verse 7 turns to the only place that can explain to him exactly who God is. If you look in verses 7 down to 11, most of your Bibles won't just say God or Lord. It'll be capital L-O-R-D. That means Yahweh. That's the personal name of God. Because only in God's word, he has personally revealed who he is. So the next time you see a sunset or the waves at the beach or the complexity in a flower or you're blown away by how much space is really above us, you can't just sit there and wonder and keep looking up. Eventually, knowing God is worthy of glory, you have to look down. And that's why David in verse 7 looks to God's word. We read the Bible because it's where God is truly understood and appreciated. And therefore, David, in the same way, is led to appreciate how amazing the Bible is. And how amazing is the God perfectly revealed in the Bible. And because of that, he describes the Bible in seven different ways in order to motivate us to go and to know God more through the Bible. Now, this is such a massively amazing part of Scripture. It's going to be really difficult um, to just say a couple words about each one of these lines because they're so awesome. But I'm going to very quickly, as quickly as I can, give you seven ways here in verses 7 to 11 that the Bible is described. Seven ways. So let's get into it. Verse 7a, the first way the Bible is described is a perfect law that leads to life. A perfect law that leads to life. 
The truth is that there are a lot of different ways that you could live your life, and each one of you are going to live different kinds of unique lives. But the one thing you can't escape is even though God's glory is clear in creation, this world still has a lot of messiness and a lot of brokenness. There's a lot of things that we go out there and we can't escape the, the fact that some things just shouldn't be the way they are. Some things are just wrong. And the only way that we can really know exactly what's wrong and exactly what's right is from God. And God also wants to know that. So he gave us not just his word, but a perfect law. God gave us a perfect law. A law is a way to live. And the reason it's perfect is because only the Bible explains exactly what it is that is good. It explains what good is. Good is not different with different people. Good is not an opinion. Good doesn't change with the culture that's around us, and it doesn't change in different periods of history. Good is always good, and good is owned and operated by God, and he's given it to us. And when we have the goodness of God explaining for us what life is about and how to live, the psalmist says that that is life-giving, that it gives life to the soul. It's better than a breath of fresh air. It's better than the warmth of a sun on a cold day. And it's better than jumping into a pool on a hot summer day because it's given you a different kind of life that this world could ever give you. The Bible does give us an option for living. It doesn't just give us a nice way to live. It gives us the only way to know life itself. And when that life begins to change your life into something greater than you could possibly imagine, then you're joining God's plan to perform his glory. And that is what life is all about. The second thing that the psalmist explains that the Bible is, is the story that should write our story. The story that should write our story. The way that God gives us his truth is different than some of us would like it to be. Many of us kind of like to have the straight facts. We like explaining what is black and what is white. Just give me the data. That's what I like. But the Bible doesn't always give that. It doesn't always explain, here's one fact, here's one fact, here's one fact, and all the dots are perfectly connected. Because God has decided to do something bigger than that. The reason that the psalmist describes the Bible as a testimony is basically describing the Bible as a story. God described history, or God described who he is through a story of history. And God described it through truth that was revealed in different people over different periods of time to show that God was going to do something bigger than just giving us the base facts. And the facts that he gives us are through history and poetry and wisdom and prophecy that all come together into one perfect story that declares God's glory. And the reason is because God determined that that would be a good way to demonstrate that his word is sure. And that means his word is trustworthy. That you can trust it. Of any of the places that try to earn your trust and your love, the only one that can prove God is worthy of your trust is the Bible. And when you see how his story is unfolding perfectly, you'll want to be part of that story and you'll want to grow as a result of that story. Because the testimony of the Lord that is trustworthy makes wise the simple. 
Now, the simple person being described isn't a dummy or an idiot. It's just someone who doesn't know what life is about yet or does a lot of life wrong. And what the Bible does is explain to you God's story so that you can know what your story needs to be about, so that you can learn and grow up. And you can see that as God is showing you all of the history that he is writing for his glory, you'll see that God also cares enough to put you into that story and give you a place as a part of his kingdom. That's the second thing that the Bible is. The third thing the Bible is, is the step-by-step source of joy. The step-by-step source of joy. That word precepts in verse 8 means step-by-step for how to live. Precepts are the ABCs of what to do and what not to do. And if you think of those as commandments, you could call them, that doesn't really seem like something that, according to David, rejoices his heart. Because if you've ever been told what to do, especially by someone you didn't necessarily know yet, it's not necessarily a joyful thing. It's not necessarily an exciting thing. So the question is, if God is telling David what to do step by step, why is that a joyful thing? And it's for the same reason as the previous point that we just made. Because everything is about God, and God is allowing us to be a part of that. An infinite God, so fully removed from us, so much greater and more infinitely glorious than us, cares enough about us to communicate his truth, to incorporate us into his plan. And he cares so much that he's helped you explain that every single step that you take might be with him and for him. And that is so amazing that it gives him not just joy, but explains to him that only with God all joy is found, that there is no greater joy in this world except what God has provided. The fourth thing that the word of God is, is a spotless sight of reality, a spotless sight of reality. I think there's only a couple of you guys, but raise your hand if you have your license now. Tyrone, he's he's got his permit, it's fine. So for some of you guys who have driven before, just imagine going down the highway at like 60 miles an hour and a truck in front of you hits some mud and the mud splashes on the front of your windshield and your windshield wipers can't get it off. Or imagine if you're wearing glasses and your glasses fall off and they fall under the seat and you can't find them. Imagine how frightening that would be. Imagine how dangerous that would be. That is a kind of an explanation of what it's like to be a sinner in a world that's built for God's glory. It is absolutely amazing that we don't run into more accidents and more danger than we do on a daily basis. It is dangerous to be a sinner in God's world. But instead of coming now to just rain judgment on us immediately, not only has he given us time, but he's given us his word so that we could see reality appropriately. The sin in our lives makes us see things wrong. And when we see them wrong, we take so many good things that God has given us and we misuse them and we abuse them. And what God's word does is it places the truth of what is good in front of us and it directs us back to what life is actually about. It takes us away from our sin. It gives us a pathway out of our self-righteousness and pride and it explains to us who God is so we can know what good is so we can glorify him. And that word is pure. That means it doesn't have any bad in it. 
in a world that's so full of good things that have become bad from even the tiniest amount of sin. God is totally absent of sin. He is totally absent of good. And the word that he's given you is a reflection of himself. That means his word doesn't have bad in it. It explains bad things, and sometimes harm comes to people in the Bible, but all of it he is explaining is going towards a future in which there will be no bad anymore and no sin anymore, because God is going to fix everything. And as a believer, on your way to know God, he has given you a way to see him and see reality around you that you can trust because it's pure. The fifth one first thing that the Bible is is very quick, which is it is the ultimate attitude adjuster, the ultimate attitude adjuster. The word of God in verse 9 is called the fear of the Lord. Go back to that explanation of the infinite nature of the sky. If you've ever been in a field and had a clear sight of the sky before and simply looked up and realized you're looking into infinity, you just stayed with that feeling for a while. It's not just exciting, it's a little terrifying. It's a little scary to realize how small and seemingly insignificant we are in the scope of an entire universe out there. That's a little taste of what the fear of the Lord is. It's not just an attitude of freaking out, it's an attitude of taking God seriously. Recognizing that there are serious things in the world, recognizing that there's this kind of wonder and a kind of respect that God is owed because he is so perfect and glorious in his holiness, which means he doesn't have sin in him. And that is important for us as believers because having the fear of the Lord is something that cleans us. It cleans the dirt of sin and pride and self-focus out of our hearts, and that is important Because the fear of the Lord isn't just an attitude that we have now. It's the attitude we're going to have towards God forever. One day when we are in God's kingdom with him, if we are in Jesus Christ, we are going to see him as he is, and we're going to marvel at who he is forever. And that's why his word is a perfect explanation of what this fear of the Lord is. And that even a million years from now, this word will still be true because it endures forever. Number six, moving a little faster here. The sixth thing the Bible is, is a complete package of truth. It is very easy for many people to take a single verse out of the Bible and say that it means something totally different than what it means. But if you take all of the truth of the Bible together, and if you allow one truth in the Bible to help clarify another truth and vice versa, and you put everything together as God intended, you have a perfect package of everything you need to know what life is about and know who life is about. 2 Timothy chapter 3, verse 16 says, All scripture is breathed out by God so that the man of God may be complete and equipped for every good work. God has given you all the Bible because every single part of it is worth teaching and equipping you so that you would know what life is about. It is the complete package of truth. And finally, in verse 10 and 11, the seventh thing the Bible is, is the most valuable words in the world. The most valuable words in the world. The reason that David spent time in God's word is because he knew God's word would give him God, and that's what he wanted most. And the more time that David spent in the word, 
the more reasons he knew God was worthy of all of his love and attention. In David's day, the most valuable thing that you could have was gold, gold that was polished and shiny and heaven, and uh, not heaven, and heavy. But verse 10, David says, I love God's word more than the most polished, shiniest, heaviest, most valuable brick of gold. I will trade gold for God any day. And in David's day, the sweetest, most addictive, sugary thing that you could ever eat was honey, specifically directly from a honeycomb. And he says, keep your bees, keep your honey. I don't need them. They are a tiny fraction of how amazing, sweet, and addictive it is to be in God's love and live for God's glory. He's saying it's better than anything in the world. And there's a simple reason for that. Because David is a broken and sinful person who has experienced the love of God and it has shown him in at least two ways, he says in verse 11, how valuable it is to him. And at least those two ways, he says in verse 11, are simple. The word of God has warned him and it has rewarded him. It has warned him and rewarded him. Firstly, it warned him. I went to college in a place called Nova Scotia, which is in eastern Canada. And most of Nova Scotia is covered by water. And that means there are a lot of people who are lobster fishermen. And it was a very dangerous job back in the day. And so if you go to Nova Scotia now, you will notice that there's a lot of lighthouses there. And lighthouses aren't just there for decoration. They're there for preservation. Because when sailors came back from fishing for lobsters, they needed to know the safest way to get back to the coast. And there were many, many dangerous ways that their boat could sink on the way there. So they needed lighthouses to direct them to the coast. The Bible is full of lighthouses. The Bible is full of warnings. It is full of places that explain that way leads to death, that way leads to death, this way leads to harm, this way leads to God. Go this way. And the more you trust the Bible, the more you will see that God, unbeknownst to you, has been leading you away from so many more dangers than you thought. And even the dangers or suffering or circumstances that you go to, you will be able to see with clarity that the, even those were meaningful and even those contributed to God's glory and contributed to you having more dependence on him. And those are the kind of rewards that he's talking about. When you see how good God really is, you will know where you want to be. You'll be able to say with James in chapter 117 that every good gift comes from above. And you'll be able to say with the psalmist in Psalm 73, 25, that whom have I in heaven but you? And there is nothing on earth that I desire besides you. That is at least seven ways that David explains how good the word of God is and why it can explain to you more of who God is than the creation around you. And it's been given for you. David's already explained that verses 1 to 6, you have to look up. You need to stop ignoring the inescapable fact that there is a God out there who is worthy of glory because he created everything. And that should make you look down to know the specifics of who this God is and know why the world seems so wrong, but why God is clarifying that he is right and good and the only life that matters is a life restored to relationship with him. But then there's a third step very important. When David looked up, he was awestruck at the amazing creation that God has made. And that feeling led him down 
to discover God in his word. And once he's read God's word, what's the feeling he's left with then? What's the feeling he has after that? Verse 12 and 13 is strange, but the feeling that David has is guilt. He feels convicted. He feels burdened. It's because after he's seen how good and glorious God is, and then he's looked in at himself, he sees how serious his sin really is. In verse 12, he says, Who can discern his errors? Declare me innocent from hidden faults. What David is saying is, is there anyone out there who knows how much sin they commit? Is there anyone out there who has a perfect checklist of, I sinned here, I sinned here, I did this, I said this, I've done that. This is every single sin I've ever committed. And he said, no one has that list. No one knows every single thing they've done wrong. Because that's how serious sin has affected our hearts. Many of you know Jeremiah 17, 9, which says, The heart is deceitful above all things and desperately sick. Who can understand it? It means when you're a sinner, it's very difficult to see yourself honestly, and therefore it's even more difficult to see in all of the ways that you are a sinner. The reality is there is one person who does see all of our sin. And that's actually the very next verse of Jeremiah 17, 9, which is Jeremiah 17, 10. Verse 10 says, I, the Lord, search the hearts and test the mind, and I give every man according to his ways, according to the fruit of his deeds. I don't see all my sin, but God sees all my sin. Now, even if I don't see all of my sin, there's lots of sin, if I'm honest with myself, that I do see, because there's lots of sin that I commit, and I know that it's sin. That's what verse 13 talks about when David says that he commits presumptuous sins. That's sins he knows about. There's wrongs that he's done because he knows they're wrong. And knowing they're wrong didn't stop him from doing them wrong. Because there's something up with his heart where he honestly recognizes that there are sins that I love more than God. There are things I do wrong because I want them to be right. Or I think they're right to me. But David doesn't like that feeling. He says he wants to be kept back from those kinds of sins. He doesn't want them to be having dominion over him. He doesn't want them to be the king of his life. And so verse 12 and 13, once he's looked back at himself and been honest about his sin, he knows there is only one conclusion he has left besides being honest with God. And that is asking for help from God. David knows from reading God's word that even though God is so infinitely greater than us, and though there should be no reason God wants a relationship with us, for some reason, he does. For some reason, he seems concerned with these creatures he's created called human beings and he's created a pathway by which we might not only love him now but we might know him and love him forever and that's the very last verse of psalm 19 which really sums up the entire point of psalm 19 david says in verse 14 with the words of my heart and the meditation of my heart be acceptable in your sight, 
O Lord, my rock and my redeemer. I remember one time being in biology class in grade 11, and we got to use microscopes. And I was supposed to be looking at slides, but me and the people in my class, we weren't very good students, and so we looked at everything else, everything that we could take, and we put it under a microscope. And that is a terrible thing to do. And it's not just because we're disobeying the rules, but you know what's on everything? Bacteria. And it's awful. And it's almost traumatizing. And I learned now that a lot of that is actually not very bad for you, and it's totally normal and fine. But at the time, I didn't. And I started to think, what is the point of this thing if everything is covered in this stuff? And you would think that that's the kind of hopeless attitude you would have when you put yourself under the microscope that God has given you in his word and you see your own sin. But it's actually not. Instead, it forces you to look in the one place that you can trust to find the purpose of life and a reason to live. And that is exclusively in God, specifically the God who is a rock and a redeemer. God is a rock, which means you can put all of your weight and all of your trust upon him because he will not move. He is staying place so you could lean on him and depend on him. But he's not just that. He's also a redeemer, which means he's a purchaser. He's someone who has bought us back from the dominion of presumptuous sin, and he's put us in the dominion of his beloved son. And if you've been with us this last year through the book of Colossians, you know why we're in the kingdom of the beloved son. Because in that beloved son, there is redemption, the forgiveness of sins. And there's only one way that we could be declared innocent of hidden faults, and that's from Jesus Christ. God sent his son, Jesus Christ, so that we might have a restored relationship with God. There is nothing we could do to earn salvation because we cannot be perfect, which is what God deserves, and we cannot fix all of the sin we've committed in God's eyes. So Jesus Christ solved both problems. Jesus Christ lived a perfect life and gave it to us so that we might look perfect before God. And Jesus Christ, fully innocent of ever committing sin, went to the cross and died on the cross. And the worst part of the cross wasn't the fact that he physically suffered, is that he spiritually suffered the wrath of a holy God. And the reason he did that is so that punishment that we deserve for our sin would be punished on Jesus instead. And therefore God wouldn't only see us as perfectly righteous, but also innocent of any sin now and that we would ever commit. That is what Jesus has done so that God could truly be called our redeemer. David didn't know all of those specifics when he was king, but we know it because we have the entire word of God. And I hope that if you know that and you believe that, you'd be able to follow that kind of path this summer. Because the truth of God's word is that it doesn't have to be homework. It doesn't have to be a chore. It doesn't have to be an uphill battle. And you'll know that the more you read it. The more you see how God is putting together a perfect story of how all things are leading towards a fully restored world under his rule, the more you'll realize you want to be a part of that. 
Even though there's no way that you could make it possible to be right with God, God has already given you a way to be right. And it's not to live a perfect life because his son did that for you already. This summer, if you want to know God better, follow the path that he has given you because he has freely offered his love to you. Look up. Look at the creation of this world by a big, glorious, unavoidable God. And when that overwhelms you, look down into his word and see the story that God has put together that's all leading towards his son who died and lived for you that you could be with God forever. And when you see that truth and know that truth, be honest about yourself. Look in and recognize that we are sinful before God and do not deserve to be in his presence, and yet he has loved us and redeemed us anyways. In a demonstration of his glory and the free offer of love for you, Jesus died on the cross for your sins. While we were still sinners, Christ died for us. And when you see God as that kind of redeemer, desire to make your life about something bigger than just yourself or bigger than just myself. Make your life about being acceptable before God. You are perfectly right in God's eyes because of Christ, but he has given you such a better life to live than this world could offer you. Through his word, he has given you an opportunity to love him and enjoy him and be about his mission which is to demonstrate this free offer of God's glory through his son Christ to others. And as you have opportunities in the summer to read God's word, to meditate on it, and to declare the gospel to other people as you're in the midst of amazing experiences and fun opportunities, remember that God has given you a pathway to know him and love him and recognize his glory, which is what life is all about. Let's pray. Father, you are good and you do good. No matter how many times we say it, we want to believe it. We want to know that there's no life worth living unless it is for your glory. Lord, we have messiness and brokenness in our lives. We know that we have sinned before you, but God, you are so much greater than our sin and your mercy is more. Lord, let us recognize how good you are and how amazing and matchless your, your grace is to us. We want to live lives that would be right and acceptable before you. We want to live lives that would trust fully in your word. We want to have lives that would love to read your word and see all of the amazing truth that you have for us and how you are bringing this whole world together and you are going to fix everything. And most importantly, we want to see the glory of you and your son Christ. Please help us recognize exactly how it is that Christ died for us, that we might be right before you because of him. Let that lead us to confession and repentance and faith and trust in you alone for salvation. And that our lives would not be to earn salvation, but our lives would be thankfulness for the salvation you have already given us. Lord, especially for our grade sevens coming in, just please um, help us to be a community that would constantly put the gospel first. And for anyone who is listening, let us constantly be aware of our situation so we might turn to you for help because you have graciously given us not only help to live a better life, 
but help to understand where life eternal is found and that you have done everything that we might receive it from you and be with you forever. Let us be those kinds of people, Lord, that live for your glory alone. Thank you, Lord, and we pray all of this in your name. Amen. Thank you, guys. I am always absolutely amazed at your attention spans. I had a quarter of your attention span when I was your age. So even every once in a while when there's someone who falls asleep, I am absolutely amazed that they heard as much as they did. So thank you. And I hope that it's worth it for you because it is. When we go into the word, we aren't just saying it as a routine or a ritual. We really do believe that there is no better life than to be a Christian. It is good to be a Christian because it is good to know Christ. And we want to talk about that with each other now. So what we're going to do is we're going to break up into four different groups. Uh, high school boys, junior high boys, high school girls, and junior high girls. So if you're a high school boy, you already know where to go. We're going to go into the wood floor room. If you're a high school girl, you're going to go up the stairs into the room with uh, uh, upper room with Ashley. If you were a junior high girl, you'll notice that there's two different groups. So I'll let you guys decide where you want to go, but the nursery and then my offices or Josh's offices are both available for you guys. And then if you're a junior high boy, you're gonna meet with Kevin and you guys are normally meeting up here so you can meet over here or you can make a circle here, whatever you guys prefer. And then around 9.45, around 9.45, if you could come back here and we're gonna stack all the chairs and we're gonna get the tables and we're gonna set them up for the men's meeting uh, that we're gonna have tomorrow. Thank you guys. Is there anything broken? Oh, David was having trouble with that before too. Yeah, I wonder what's happening. Okay. Yeah, that's good.